As the Israelites journeyed through the desert, they began to complain. They were tired of eating manna and wanted meat like they had when they were slaves in Egypt. Frustrated by their complaining, God gave the Israelites exactly what they wanted. A huge wind blew an enormous flock of quail right into their camp. They had so much quail that it took them two days to collect it all. They spread the quail out, but before they could consume it, God sent a plague that killed those who asked for meat. The Israelites continued their journey toward the Promised Land. They came to the outskirts of a city called Canaan. Moses sent spies ahead to see if the city was a good place to live and how tough the battle might be to take it over. The spies came back and told him the land was amazing, flowing with milk and honey and all kinds of fruit. But the people living there were huge, like giants, and that it would be impossible to defeat them. But two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, told the Israelite leaders they should go into Canaan because God was on their side. The leaders refused, becoming so angry at Joshua and Caleb that they almost executed them because the Israelites didn't believe that God would help them. God sent them to wander in the desert for 40 years. In the desert, the Israelites were having trouble finding water and began to complain. So God told Moses to speak to a rock and water would flow from it. Moses obeyed God, but only partly, even though God had told Moses to strike a rock for water before, God told Moses to only speak to it this time. But Moses disobeyed and struck it anyway. God wasn't happy with Moses' lack of trust and punished him by allowing him to see the promised land, but not enter it. Moses was getting pretty old and looked for someone to take over for him as leader. He chose Joshua. Just before he died, Moses stood before the entire nation of Israel and told them the story of how God had promised land to Abraham, freed them from slavery in Egypt, and had even given them commands to live by as God's special people. When he finished, Moses climbed a nearby mountain. God showed him all of the promised land, and Moses died. Have you ever met somebody that from the first time you heard their story or heard about their condition, your heart absolutely broke for them? I think we've all met someone in those situations. One that comes to mind for me is a boy by the name of Kamau. And during my last two trips to Kenya, I had a chance to get to know Kamau a little bit. You can see his picture here uh, with my sister-in-law. Um, my sister-in-law is the one in the green, just in case you're wondering. Uh, but little Kamau here is, um, you can tell why he's easy to love. He's got this smile and this radiance about him. They could really light up a room, but he's a street kid and has rarely ever been in a room. People are naturally drawn to him, and yet he is stuck in addiction as a little boy. He is so addicted to glue that the street kids often huff in order to ease the pain of the trauma they've experienced while on the streets there of Kenya. 
Uh, he's shown up so high at times that literally he grabbed a hold of an electric fence with both hands and was unfazed by it as he just held on to it uh, as it shocked him because he was just so overwhelmed with the, with the glue that he'd been huffing. When our kids are busy playing Legos, or their biggest concern is what kind of candy they can get their mom to get them when they go to the grocery store, a street kid's greatest concern is where they are going to sleep at night or what they're going to eat for their next meal because they have to find it themselves, or how they can stay safe from getting beaten or raped. You can understand why taking a huff of glue is to ease that kind of continual stress and trauma would be very appealing. Here's where a kid like Kamau sleeps at. He sleeps under an overpass on a bunch of mattresses um, that uh, lock with other street kids. If he's lucky enough to have other street kids that will welcome him in, at least they have security and numbers. If you don't already have sympathy for Kamau, let me just share with you one more piece of knowledge. Kamau went to the streets at the age of four. At four years old, he was left to go onto the streets. Now he's probably about 12, so we know people that have been doing their best to work with him for almost eight years now. But can you imagine Our kids wouldn't even cross the street at four years old. And here is a child living on the street. He knows nothing different. He can't even remember before he was four when he lived in a home at all. He knows nothing different. And so why should we be surprised when he can't break free from the chains that seem to be enslaving him? When I read the story of the Exodus and the subsequent wandering in the wilderness, I have a similar sympathy for them the Israelites that I do for Kamau. We don't know how long they'd been enslaved. We know they were in in, in Egypt for 400 years, but they'd been slaves for at least a generation. That's all that they knew. So why should we be surprised when they struggle to transition from slaves to God's sons and daughters? So when I read the scriptures, I think of this Rolling Stones song, uh, Sympathy for the Devil. Remember that song? I don't have sympathy for the devil, but I do have sympathy for the Israelites as they go through these struggles. Here's the deal. They were moving from Egypt to the promised land, but they were making a bigger move from slavery to being God's sons and daughters. It's the same spiritual pilgrimage that we have to make as well. The Bible says that we too were once slaves to sin, but now through Jesus Christ that we have been freed from that slavery and are now God's children, His very own sons and daughters. Romans 8 says it this way, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. But just as the Israelites struggled to make that move from being slaves to being God's children, so we struggle to make that move too, don't we? This week we start chapter 6 of the story, the journey we've been going through for the last five weeks and will be for the next 30 weeks or so. Uh, And this week we start a new sub-series called The Big Move where we talk about finding God when everything changes. Finding God even though everything else in our life has changed. And today we talk about finding God 
when we start to live as free people, when we start to live as people who have been released from the bondage of the slavery to sin. But today, as we see the Israelites making this move, they struggle. They've seen God move through Egypt uh, through the plagues, and now they saw God move through the Red Sea. But now as they enter the Promised Land, they, have, they do nothing but complain, seemingly. They simply don't trust God. They're still acting like they're slaves. And so here's the point that I want to make to you today. That God is calling us out of slavery to be His sons and daughters. God is calling us out of that spiritual bondage that we have to sin to be His sons and daughters in Christ. But on our journey between slavery and living as God's children stands a wilderness. There's a wilderness that we have to go through. And on this journey from slavery to living as God's sons and daughters, we have to endure the wilderness. Notice I did not say we have to enjoy the wilderness. I did not say that we must be thankful always for the wilderness. There will be times where we have to just work through it. But I'm telling you, the most important word here is to endure the wilderness. We have to endure the hardships that we face. Let me just pause real quick. What's the wilderness in your life right now? What is the hardship that you are having trouble enduring? Is it a relational matter? Is it a job? Is it a physical ailment? What is your wilderness? Because I think it starts by defining that wilderness moment that you are in or that you are about to go into or that you have recently gotten out of. And so today I want to talk about the five temptations we face while in the wilderness. The five things that we see here in Scripture that will bring us down just as it brought Israel down if we do not look to Christ in the midst of them. I'm going to be looking in Numbers today, starting in Numbers 3, verses 1 through 3. And it says in Numbers 13, verses 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe send one of its leaders. Which there were 12 tribes, so Moses picked out 12 men. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out of the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. And they go, they check out the land, and it says they came back in verse 6, 26 to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And they reported to him, them and the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. Imagine them coming back in. A couple of them had like a pole across their shoulders with like a big old pile of grapes on it, big old pile of fruit. They brought back the fruit from the land. And it says, they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Remember that Dairy Queen imagery I gave you last week? Mm-hmm. Here is its fruit. But... And here's where the but comes in. There always seems to be a but, doesn't there? In verse 28, it says, But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. I'm not sure who Anak was, but I think he might have played center on the Philistine basketball team. He was a big boy, right? Here's temptation number one. Temptation number one is to be surprised by challenges along the way. 
To be surprised when we encounter hardships and tribulation and trials. The reality is, is that we have a big God. And our God could rescue us from every trial. And yet, He doesn't, does He? God allows us. He saves us from our sin, but He doesn't seem to be giving me enough help with my anger, or with my relationship problems, or with my thought life. Can you identify? And yet in Deuteronomy 8.5 it says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Discipline isn't only when you do bad things. Discipline is when your children are trying to eat the whole bag of chips and you say no, you only get a handful, right? That's discipline because you're shaping someone. Discipline from God isn't just because you've done something bad. Oftentimes, you haven't done anything wrong to deserve that type of discipline, but rather it's out of God's preemptive love for you that He's disciplining you to save you from hardship later on, to help you become the man or woman that He wants you to be. And the reality is is that God shapes us through our suffering, through these challenges that we encounter. He isn't a helicopter dad that doesn't ever let us experience pain. Rather, He is a God who meets us in our pain and suffering in a way that we simply wouldn't respond to unless we were allowed to experience it. And so temptation number one is to be surprised by challenges along the way. If He's God, then why does He let me go through this pain? To get to temptation number two, we start in verse 30. It says, then Caleb, Caleb was one of the twelve who went, but he and Joshua were the two that came back and said, no, 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 this is good. Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for certainly we can do it. But then the men who went up, gone up with him said, we can't attack the people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. Temptation number two is to listen to the voices of the crowd instead of the faithful few. And I think this is so important that we understand in today's world where we value the input of the crowds or of social media so much, where people's views on things can change so quickly because of the social pressure that they feel. Facebook just came out with a new commercial that my wife and I were watching uh, a few nights ago and we saw, and the commercial is where the, the, the person types out, help, I'm lost. And in response, all of these people from different walks of life who are seemingly strangers to him, maybe friends on Facebook, but that's it, come back with all these different responses. One of them involves butterflies, because if you're lost, you clearly need to turn to butterflies. And all these different experiences. And I was thinking to myself, if one of my friends types, help, I'm lost, I better be picking up the phone and giving them a call or getting my keys out and driving over to their house and checking on them and seeing how they are. There are things that we need to do that don't need to be crowdsourced. Advice is one of those things that if we wind up crowdsourcing things, we might be in real trouble with the advice we get back. So temptation number two is to listen to the voices of the crowd instead of the faithful few. Let me just ask you, who are the faithful few in your life? 
Who are the people that you know you can trust for good, godly, sound advice? Turn to them. Don't turn to the crowds. Because the crowds will lead you astray. Turn to the faithful few who are rooted in God's Word. Let me ask you this. Who are you the faithful few for? Who is it that is turning to you for that wisdom? It's so important for those of us who are seen as leaders, for those of us who are seen as those who people can turn to, to be grounded in God's Word and continuing to grow our roots in there. Because when people are turning to us, we need to give them faithful advice. We need to give them faithful wisdom and direction for their lives and not lead them astray. For temptation number three, we go to verse 32, and it says, they said the land we explored devours those living in it. Do you think that they might be using a little bit of exaggeration here? The land devours them. While they're standing here looking at this big old pile of grapes that they just brought back from the promised land. All the people we saw there are of great size. Everybody, everybody's tall. There's nobody short. Even the women are tall. The children are giants. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak who come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Temptation number three is to let the giants obscure your view of God. Here's the reality. You will never face a challenge in your life that is bigger than God. You will never face a challenge in your life that is bigger than God. I don't care what temptation that you face The Bible says that Jesus was tempted to the fullest and overcame every one of them. And he who is tempted to the fullest is able to help you to overcome sin. I don't care if it's death. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ overcame death itself when he was resurrected from the grave. And even if you don't see deliverance from the wilderness in this lifetime, I'm telling you that Christ is, re- he is risen and he is returning. He's coming again for you and for me. And we will experience resurrection someday. Even if we are still stuck in the wilderness, we can experience resurrection. We'll be brought out of that into his glorious light. And so whatever giants you face, I'm telling you, God is bigger than even temptation, than bigger than relational problems, bigger than death. God is bigger than all of them. Jesus has overcome all of them, and he will help you to overcome them in this life and in the life to come. Temptation number three, to let giants obscure your view of God. That's really what we see in David and Goliath, isn't it? is that David didn't allow the giant, the nine-footer standing in his way, to obscure that he had a God who's bigger than him. And I'm telling you that all the trials that you face, God is bigger. He could rescue you right now if if he thought it was best. But he knows what is best. And for some of you, that's why he's allowing you to endure these trials. Don't let the giants obscure your view of God. He is bigger than even death. So I ask you today, do you resemble Caleb or the crowd in this matter? Do you resemble Caleb who was bold and who was willing to stand up in the midst of the wilderness and say, hey, God is working through this. God is big enough. Or do you resemble the crowd that is the naysayers? Well, here we are. We might as well just die out here in the desert. 
Because we need faithful Caleb's in today's culture to be among the few to stand with courage and to proclaim the goodness of God. Numbers 14, we see temptation number four. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. They had a big crying party out there in the middle of the desert, the middle of the wilderness. And then it turned into that, to complaining. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died back in Egypt, or even if we just died here in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to the land to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. It was just awful, wasn't it? Some of you are thinking back to children complaining, because that's what they sound like here, doesn't it? They sound like children who are complaining. And that's because they fell victim to temptation number four, which is this, to forget how God has been faithful in the past. To forget how God has been faithful in the past. Because the reality is, is God's past work in our lives God's past work in history is how we endure our current trials because we see in the past that God was faithful. He was faithful. He's been faithful for thousands of years that we see through human history. And He's going to continue to be faithful in our lives. We look back and we see how He was faithful to get us to the point where we're at today. And we believe He's going to continue to be faithful. That's why one of the greatest commands in Scripture is to be thankful. Because we have to look back, and we have to look back when we are thankful. We look back to see how God got us to where we're at, and we say, thank you, God, for getting me there. How long has it been since you have counted the ways that you have in your life to be thankful for God? How long has it been since you have written them down on paper? Start with birth. Start before your life even started with your parents and your family. Because we believe God's a God of, of every generation, not just ours. And write them down, all the different ways that God has been faithful. Thank you, God, for being faithful here. Thank you for this. Thank you for this. Thank you for this. Thank you for this. Because thankfulness and complaining are, are like they're the opposite of each other. And if, if you're complaining, if your kids are complaining, make them write down everything that they're thankful for, okay? Kids, that'll shut you up in a hurry, won't it, huh? And it's, uh, sorry, I'm not supposed to say that, but yeah. Uh, anyway, I'll, I'll be thankful for that later on. Uh, somehow, some way. Um, but, but, but the reality is here is that if we would only choose to be thankful, you start complaining, your spouse starts complaining, you, you know, your, your kids start complaining. You just say, hey, time out, time out. We're going to take a thankfulness time out right now. You get an unlimited supply. It's not five and you're over. You know, not like basketball. You get as many timeouts as you want, all right? Not going to pull a Chris Weber on this one. You'll have plenty of timeouts left. Some of you get that reference, I think, right? Nobody? Oh, yeah, 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 there we go. All right, good, good, good. But, but, but that's what we've got to do is we've got to say, guys, it's, it's time for us to be thankful and remember how God has worked in the past. And, and, and so I want to just remind you that, that we have this thing called forgetfulness and, and it tends to increase with age, doesn't it? Do any of you have a, have a parent that's starting to be forgetful? 
that they're starting to forget things? Are some of you starting to forget things? I know I'm 43 years old and I'm starting to forget things. I, I had a friend tell me the other day that he walks in the room and he forgets what he had when he went in the room for. And then I forgot what his name was in the middle of the conversation. And I thought, yeah, yeah, me too. And me too, Joe. And he said, my name's not Joe, it's John. And it was awkward, you know. But the more you rehearse God's faithfulness, the more prone you are to remember it in the future. How are you rehearsing? How are you singing that song of thankfulness in your head over and over again? Because it is a tune that we need to remember. Temptation number four is to forget how God has been faithful in the past. And the final temptation, temptation five, we see in Numbers 14, verses three and four. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Temptation number five is to go back to what you already know. It's to regress in your life, to go back to what you already know, to go back to the way you acted before you knew Christ, to go back to the way you chose to live before you repented and, and moved forward. What is it in your life that you dwell on and think, man, you know, I had a little bit of happiness. How have you, you a lot of times what happens is when we dwell on the sin rather than on the Savior, what happens is we redefine the past events in our lives that caused us pain and we remember the pleasure instead of the pain. You ever do that? You start rehearsing in your mind some of those things that brought you a little bit of pleasure and you remember all the pleasure, but you just, just forget about the pain somehow. Think, man, if I could just go back to that, then I'd be happy. No, you wouldn't. First of all, you can't go back. Second of all, you wouldn't be happy. You would be miserable once again. The reality is, is that we don't need to go back to what we already know. We need to go forward to the one who is unveiling himself to us, the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of all of this, it says in Numbers 14 that the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I lived and surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times. But because of my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, Caleb, and it goes on later on to say Joshua as well, I will bring them into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Basically what happened is God said, hey, I forgive y'all, but you're not going into the promised land. Like you're going to die out here in the wilderness and your kids will get to go, but you aren't. And the whole generation died out there, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and they died there. The reality is, is there a consequence for disobedience? When we choose not to be thankful, when we choose not to remember God, when we choose to see the giants in our lives instead of God being the giant, when we choose to be surprised by the challenges along the way, when we choose to listen to the voices of the crowd instead of the faithful few, there are consequences that will cost us and could cost our children as well. So let me just leave you with this thought. Don't let the wilderness wither your faith. Don't let the wilderness wither your faith. The reality is, is that in the desert, the desert plants that survive, they, they can survive because of a deep root system. They can grow deeper and deeper. And my question is, as you're in the middle of the wilderness, are you going to let your, your leaves wither or are you going to let your roots grow down deeper?
The wilderness is the time to let your roots grow deep. To let your roots grow deep so that you can thrive even in the midst of the wilderness. Don't just get through the wilderness. Grow through the wilderness. Trust God in the wilderness. You know, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, as he's about to die, some of his very last words in Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 through 20, he gives this challenge to the people who are about to go in the promised land without him. He says, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live, that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years and the land he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Choose life that you and your children may live. When you're in the midst of the wilderness, choose life. You know, when the gospel writers were writing the gospels, they chose to include, three of them chose to include the story of the temptation of Jesus because it so closely mirrored what happened. Jesus, after being tempted or while he was tempted, uh, it says a little differently in the Gospels, but, but he spent where 40 days in the wilderness. And yet, rather than succumbing to the temptation of Satan, he overcame them. And those 40 days are meant to mirror the 40 years where the Israelites failed in the wilderness to show that Jesus is the faithful one that we can trust in the midst of the wilderness. He is the one who trusted in God rather than in the easy outs of Satan. And he overcame sin and death because of his faithfulness to God. And I want to tell you that you too can overcome sin and death in your life by looking to Jesus, the one who conquered not only the wilderness, but the one who conquered the cross. May church, may you look to him and find strength for the journey through the wilderness. Because he alone is faithful. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for the wilderness. We thank you that you love us so much that you refuse to let us be as we are. But that you continue to call us to a deeper way of life. So Jesus, we look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We look to you for our strength, for our endurance, for our patience, for our joy, for our thankfulness in the midst of the wilderness. Father, I pray for those who are struggling today in the wilderness. For those who are struggling for strength, for those who are struggling to have hope for tomorrow, for those who are struggling physically, for those who are struggling mentally, for those who are struggling with the challenge to take the next step of faith forward. Lord, I pray that they would remember, that they would remember and be thankful for your faithfulness. And I pray that you give them the strength to endure one day at a time, Lord. May you just give them the strength each morning to face that day's challenges. And may you show them your faithfulness in the midst of the wilderness. We love you and we look to Jesus. In his name we pray.
Amen.